This is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and on today's show, I'm talking to lawyer and the man behind the Tech Law Crossroads blog, Stephen Embry. We're talking about getting beyond AI hype and actually really employing it in legal practice. In this episode, I have a great conversation with attorney and legal tech aficionado, Stephen Embry. He's also the man behind the Tech Law Crossroads blog, which I highly recommend for some practical and real-world insight about legal tech. In my conversation with Stephen, we delve into his journey from general litigation into mass tort work and ultimately how he built up a cybersecurity practice. Stephen and I also explore the potential impact AI could have on the legal field, including using it for back office operations and using it to minimize the less productive lawyers on a payroll. Stephen also provides us some insight on how technology can enhance efficiency in law firms and his belief that properly using AI will separate the good lawyers from the average lawyers in the pack. Thanks for coming on. I love your blog, Tech Law Crossroads. Glad to be here. Great content and um, highly recommend everybody check it out. But there was one thing I saw on there that I don't think met the quality of the rest of your blog. I saw on there somewhere in your bio that you're a Lifelong UK basketball fan. Is that still true? <laughs> that is true. Yep. See, my two kids go to Indiana. My wife went to Indiana. So, oh, so no. we're not But hey, they, they got the rivalry back, so they'll be playing each other soon. Yeah. I know. I know. That's yeah. a good thing. That was, a, that was always a good yep. rivalry. And they used to play in football, yeah. too, which was also a good rivalry because they were both always mediocre teams. Now, so now Kentucky. The, the same is true for Indiana. They're, well, they're not, I don't even know if they're mediocre, but... Uh, Kentucky does well though, so yeah. Well, hey, everybody's got their their team, so can't fault you for that. And, and <laughs> UK right. fans are very, very devout, so that that's an impressive, they're impressive fan. That is a, that is a tactful way of putting it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so you were in private practice for a long time until a few years ago, and did you start out doing mass torts? No, I didn't. I started out just doing general litigation, and you know, back in those days. You actually tried cases. Right. And I had a partner who did a lot of equine-related work with some some real characters, and they got into a lot of disputes, and so I tried several cases. And after a few years doing that, I, I had an opportunity to work with one of my other partners on a, on a very large case in Puerto Rico and uh, actually lived there for oh, wow. a, year and a, half, a year and a half trying this case. And I just developed a practice from that and went on to have, uh, fortunately, lots of cases all over the country. And, you know, I've, I've often joked that every now and then I would get a call from somebody that would say, I have a case in Louisville, Kentucky. It's in front of Judge So-and-so. What can you tell me about Judge So-and-so? And I would say, I don't have a clue. I don't have, <laughs> a I don't have any cases here. I mean, I can ask around for you. And it was always kind of amusing, but but yeah, so I had a, a pretty long and successful career doing that. So the case that you had in Puerto Rico, was that like a mass tort class action type of suit? Was it multiple plaintiff? It was a hotel fire situation and about a uh, hundred people were killed in the fire and it just turned into a huge, huge trial. Went about a year and a half actually wow. in trial. But at some point, because you're into tech you know, legal tech specifically, at some point you morph over, start doing cyber work. You know, that happens fairly recently in, in the whole scheme of your career. How'd you start doing that, coming from multi-plaintiff cases into cyber? I was interested in technology 
and uh, knew a little bit about it because of that interest. And so gradually sort of moved into that area as, you know, the mass tort work became uh, much more interest driven, at least the kind of things I was doing, which got, uh, had great pressures associated with it that we didn't have earlier, earlier in my career. And so I was looking to do something different, but you know, the thing about cyber security and privacy is it's a, it's a ever developing area and still is. And it's, uh, you know, a place where people need help, but a lot of the help is more advisory right. than actual litigation. So I got into it a bit. And about that time I, uh, started writing a blog and decided that that was a whole lot more fun than, <laughs> than practicing <laughs> law full time. And, uh, it didn't pay quite as well, but <laughs> at that point that I left the firm and started blogging and doing, uh, sort of technology advisory kind of work full time. When was that? I want to say it's around 2014, 2015. Is that the right time frame? 2016, yeah. 2017. I actually started writing, you know, before I left uh, the practice or left the firm. And, you know, it, it got to the point where I would wake up in the morning if I was going to spend the day working on my blog. I'd hop out of bed and get to work. And it was a day I was going to have to go practice law. I'd kind of pull the covers back <laughs> over my head and go, Oh man, do I have to go do this today? <laughs> so that that sort of sent me a message. <laughs> what kind of advisory work tech wise are you doing? Is it legal related solely or business? Law firms mainly. Uh individual lawyers will ask for advice on what kind of technology to use and what's out there and what's going on and uh things like that. It's sort of a sideline to everything else. But I'm always glad to help people and I've sort of in a unique position because of all the years that I did practice, albeit in a larger law firm, but that gives me a little bit more perspective on some of the issues right. that lawyers are facing and pressures that they're facing, at least outside lawyers, not so much in-house because I was never an in-house lawyer, although I worked with quite a few of them. And speaking of tech, so you've been into tech. How did you get in there? Are you a computer guy? Do you have a computing background or... Not at all. It's And it's kind of a long story, but I had always been pretty interested in finding ways to get work done more efficiently. A lot of that was because I had a, a young family. I wanted to spend time with them. And, but the real impetus for my involvement occurred when I was going on vacation with my wife and two, not toddlers, but they were eight, five in that range. And they had a brief due and I was Sitting in the car, my wife was driving, and I was trying to figure out how am I going to get this brief done remotely from Florida, being on vacation, and it's due, and scowling, and papers are flying everywhere. And my wife said, well, why don't you take a break for a few minutes? So I, I opened up an issue of The American Warrior, and there was an article in there about Fred Bartlett, uh, Bartlett and Beck. And how he was using technology. And I'll never forget the, the quote from him. He said, yes, you know, I, I have a brief view in a couple of days, but I'm sitting in my condo in Colorado looking out over the mountains while I'm completing it. And I'll be emailing it back in. And I said, you know, this guy's on to something. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of spurred my interest in technology. And, and I kept with it for a number of years. And um, it enabled me to do a lot of things, including working remotely back in the 90s from my house. You know, I got to do a lot of things with my kids and my family that I 
wouldn't have otherwise. And I discovered really the value of being able to do that. Not only can you work where you want to work, but you can also work when you want to work, right? Uh, which frees up your schedule. And um, I'm not sure what my partners thought of my <laughs> my work from home, but it it made a much more enjoyable career out of it. So that's email in the '90s. Let's let's fast forward to 2023. Over the last year, say nine months, ten months now, maybe a little bit longer, especially since ChatGPT has come out and these large language models are starting to take more hold. You've written a lot of good articles about AI and AI being used in legal or the potential for it, really. Right. I want to get your take on this. What seems to be interesting about these LLM and legal specifically is historically, lawyers and law firms have been slow to adopt tech. Or maybe my take is wrong. That's why I want to get your opinion on this. I feel like there's some FOMO about LLM. I feel like every law firm out there, big and small, is just onto this or worried about it. They don't you know, have their own piece of AI-assisted legal tool that they're going to fall behind. I compare this like e-discovery software where still in some, you know, areas of, of legal, there's still some slow adoption there even today. But do you sense the same kind of FOMO that, that I think I've seen or no? Well, you know, it's interesting. First, you have to understand how segmented the legal market is. You take your top 50 law firms, for example, and what they do with technology and large language models may be completely different than the MLAW 200 law firms, right. and certainly different than small and solo shops. So it's hard to, hard to make a generalization. Certainly in the press, publicly, law firms are trumpeting their embracing of generative AI and large language models. How much of that is true and how much <laughs> of that is high yeah. is hard it's hard to say. It is interesting, though, when you look at some of the vendors in the legal tech space, a lot of them are trumpeting their products, generative AI products, but a lot of them are doing it as sort of, this is what we're going to do down the road. And so, uh, you know, query, you know, if the legal tech vendors are talking about it in that fashion, how much are the law firms really doing as opposed to to merely saying or planning. And that's hard to say. Certainly, there's a lot more talk about this technology and a lot more talk about adopting it, a lot more talk about using it than, than I've seen with any technology that's come out since in my career. But, you know, it's what's the old Texas saying, whether it's all had and no cattle remains to be seen. Right. And you anticipated my next question, and that's why I asked it, is how much of it is hide? Because it, to your point, about legal tech companies, you know, at my company, we're working on some AI, but I'll be the first to admit it's nowhere close. Like it's, it's just, there are some tools out there that are working as, as promised, but it's not happening tomorrow. It's going to happen soon, but it's just, it's just not there yet. And if you guys are in that space, you know, the law firms can't be where you are, just sort of by definition, right. because they're lawyers, not technologists. So a lot of them may be a lot of the law firms may be advocating getting products from legal tech vendors. There are a few law firms that are talking about creating their own closed systems. And yeah, I'm I'm a little skeptical of those just because I'm not sure they have the right. capability of doing it, at least in the scope that they say they're going to have done it already. But we'll see. I mean, right. the fact that they're interested in it and talking about it is something different than we've seen before. 
When we come back, Stephen fills us in on why he thinks that it'll be the good lawyers that adopt AI into their practice and how using artificial intelligence for back office work is a great place for law firms to start. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We'll get back to my conversation with Stephen Embry in just a second. But before we do, I want to direct you to tlpodcast.com. There you'll find an episode page about this episode and every other episode that we've done in the past. You'll find more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Or you can catch me on LinkedIn and Twitter. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Stephen Embry. He's about to fill us in on why he thinks that good lawyers will start to adopt AI and it will separate them from the less good lawyers in the pack. Good lawyers using AI will still be in business. Lawyers that aren't using AI will not be. So you have to kind of dissect that. It's sort of, and it premise is that lawyers will have more time to do what they do best, which is strategy and visioning and advising clients. In my experience over the years, there just aren't that many lawyers that are good at doing those things. I mean, when you really think about it. So those lawyers that are good at it will embrace this, these tools, I think, so that they do have more time. And that was my point of my, my when I said that ask a room full of good lawyers if they could do more for the clients if they had more time. I think they would all say yes. The profession, though, has, I think, I think there's too many lawyers for the amount of good paying work that's out there. So as a result, we've seen the phenomenon of the underproductive partner, for example, who just doesn't have enough work to do. That's a problem in a lot of law firms. What do you do with those people? So I think there's going to be some fallout. I think the demand for legal services will go down. And I say legal services very broadly because a lot of things that generative AI will replace are not really legal work. They're work that are being done by legal professionals just because somebody's got to do it, right? The work's got to get done. That work, that repetitive kind of mundane work can be replaced with large language models, generative AI. So whoever's doing that job, whether that is an underproductive partner, whether it's an administrative assistant, whether it's a paralegal, whoever's doing that will not have as much work to do as they once did. So doesn't AI maybe indirectly in that scenario lessen the need if there is really a need for an unproductive partner. There probably is because there's still maybe there's just enough work that that unproductive lawyer can do to keep them on staff. But maybe if you move stuff around where the productive lawyer can push off some of the more rote work that AI can do and then bring on some of the work that the unproductive lawyer was getting done, maybe that lessens the need for those those people. Maybe that makes it less of a problem. Yeah. Well, it's always a problem in the law firm because they're your partner. Yeah. And so what do you do? More so in smaller firms. And while 50, it's not such a big problem because, you know, they've got so many lawyers that they don't know each other as well. It's the, the ties are not as great. But in smaller law firms, it's hard to deal with an unproductive partner, right? Because not only are they your partner, but a lot of times they're your friend. Uh, right. They, they've provided years of loyal service to the firm. And, you know, so it, it's difficult to deal with. But Firms that are run like businesses will and are dealing with that problem already. Shakeout will be, I think, that to the extent your practice and your billable hours are propped up by 
work that can be done in the future by artificial intelligence, you're going to have to find something to replace that if you want to continue your standard of living and doing what you're doing. And what that something is, is yet unknown. But, you know, there's numerous examples, as you know, in the in business where new technology comes along and everybody says, the sky is falling, that's the end. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that it's not the end. People just do different things. And yeah, the, the good example is when the ATM machines appeared, everybody said that's the end of the banks and bank tellers. Well, I don't know about where you live, but where I live, there are more banks now than there ever were, <laughs> but that people do different things and perform different functions than they once did. And that we're going to see that, I think, in the practice of law, what those different functions are right now is unknown, but there will be because there always is. You touched on something just a minute ago, too. You pointed out that as AI exists now in its current formation, the stuff that it is good at may not be quote unquote legal work. It's something adjacent to legal work is something that needs to be right. done legal. But you've written a couple times about this, a point that I don't think a lot of people are making as it relates to law firms. And, and this actually would apply to any industry is AI is good for back office stuff, right? And so if you save money there, you can, you can help your bottom line. That's low hanging fruit for law firms because that's just overhead that you have to pay. If you have to pay a salary for people to do that kind of stuff, you got to pay salary, you got to pay benefits. There's only so many hours that they work. They have to have vacations. They have to have health care. But if if you have an AI program that can do most of that work, that's easy. And you're not even knocking off any billable hours or touching the legal work. You're just making it easier and more productive and eliminating costs. And the example that I always think about is the billing function. How much of the billing function that that lawyers and legal professionals and support staff perform could be replaced by generative AI? And I can tell you that billing is the bane of almost any lawyer's existence. I mean, there's nothing that that is good or productive or fun about having to get your bills out. It's just mundane work. You can't bill for it. It takes time. You have to get it right. You want the descriptions to be right. You want your client to read it and not blow their stack. And it's it's horrible. I mean, so the more AI can do to, to eliminate that work and that function, the happier everybody will be across the board. And there are numerous sort of examples of that client intake and the information you have to take, even practice management, trying to ascertain who does what in a law firm and how much work there is and how profitable it is. All of those things can take a lot of time if somebody sits down and tries to do it, and its results are often are not as good as they can be. So there's all sorts of back office functions that these generative AI tools will be able to perform, I think, in the future and are already. And going back to the actual legal work, assuming AI at some point can do it competently, you're also the first to admit in a couple of your articles that the love of the billable hour, which... You know, we've been talking about replacing it for, for years now. It's still there. And there's <laughs> this, there's this yeah. friction. So how does that play out? How, let's say tomorrow a piece of AI can really write a brief that a human spends 10 minutes looking at it, checking the sites and stuff, and it's, it's ready to go. We can file in court. Now, again, this is going to happen tomorrow, and I'm, I'm, this is just a little bit of hyperbole and hypothetical, but let's say that happens. What does happen to the billable yeah. hour? It's, what's going to motivate a law firm 
to buy that software to do that work? Well, what would motivate a law firm to do it is if clients insisted upon it. And uh, up till now, clients have not insisted upon it. I did a flat fee arrangement on a national engagement that I had in the late 90s. And it was eye-opening, made me see the world in a different way. And after that, I always tried to convince clients when I took a case that, you know, why don't we do this on a, with an alternative fee, a flat fee? And they'd always say, well, that's a great idea. Let's, yeah, let's look at that. And then every time they would come back and say, well, we'll just do the Because everybody power. thinks they're leaving money on the table, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. But to get to your point with the respect to the AI, obviously, if you used artificial intelligence, generative AI to, to write your brief, you can't bill the same amount of time for the brief. It's going to be much less because the, the AI tool can do it much quicker. But if you charge by the task and increase the number of tasks, increase the number of briefs the AI will write, then you have an opportunity to make up what you may lose on the other end. The AI tool can run all night and never gets tired and can kick out hundreds of briefs. So if you're, if you're charging by the task, you do have the opportunity to make money if you go at it the right way. Now, having said all that, are there an increased number of tasks yes. that these tools can do? And that's hard to say. All the surveys would suggest that the amount of legal work and the complexity of legal work is increasing at an exponential rate for a whole lot of reasons. And, you know, if that's true, then, yeah, there may be more work that can be done. And since you're not having a a human do that work who gets tired and can only work so many hours a day, that could mean that there is work that's not getting done that could get done if there was a machine there to do it. So if you combine those two things, the increase in the amount of work and complexity and getting work done that's not being done now, there is potential that there's a lot more tasks that could be performed out there. But you have to think about it, I think, in different ways than we always thought about it because the standard way of thinking about it is doable hour and that leads you into certain sort of dead ends when it comes to to these kinds of tools i think probably to your point too there you know there are only so many hours in a day that a lawyer can bill and this even assuming it's 24 they don't sleep or whatever even then even lawyers that are billing 10 15 hours a day there are probably some things they would do for other clients they just don't have the time to do and the clients will probably pay for that aren't maybe bet the case type of stuff but still would help a case maybe that's where some of the areas filled too right that's entirely true and there's a lot of that work out there you know people get tired right i mean if you talk about what a lawyer does best which is advising and strategizing and envisioning that's not easy work right and try and do that for a 12-hour day. And what you push out at the end is probably not as visionary as what you push out at the beginning. So there is the possibility that by using these tools, you have more time to do really good thinking, more thinking time, which will let you help more clients and will help your clients too, because you're, they will get better answers, you know, assuming the lawyer is, is a a high quality practitioner and knows what they're doing and all that, they'll get better answers when that lawyer is not stressed to the max trying to get so much work done, many of, much of which he or she doesn't need to be doing. And it's like that with all of us, right? I mean, 
you think about your day, you know, how much of your days are you, do you spend doing things that somebody else could do if there were somebody else right. to, to do it, right? <laughs> and you made two good points there. One being, that's another way AI can help. If a lawyer has more time to think, AI can help with that task. You know, type something yeah. in the chat, GBT. I'm thinking about doing XYZ, you know, motion or, or whatever, or this legal theory. Right. And AI hopefully will come back with something you didn't think about. And then to your point too, where if AI could get to the point where it can draft a brief that with minimal human involvement, the level of human involvement that it makes sense to for the human to spend the time doing, if it gets to that point, maybe it becomes cheaper just to do this stuff. Like there's this jurisdictional motion or venue motion you probably weren't going to file because you knew you were going to lose. But if AI can do it for a thousand bucks when a law firm would have had to charge 20,000 right. before, maybe you still do it. Maybe you file it. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, and this is kind of how insurance companies work, right? Because they have huge volumes of litigation. So if they look at their complete book of litigation, complete book of business, and compare the transactional cost to get an A job with the transactional cost to get a C-plus job and the difference that they have to pay in liability dollars, it becomes pretty evident that a C-plus job is right. good enough, right? Because you save so much on the transactional. And the same is true here. The kind of brief that Chat GPT could write right now would be a mediocre brief at best. The kind of brief that a good lawyer would write would be an A-plus right. job. Some cases, they need an A-plus job. A lot of cases, the C-plus job right. is fine. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the truth of the matter for a whole lot of factors, either the, the amount in controversy or the kind of case it is or how repetitive it is or all those things play into it. So, so yeah, I mean, again, you're sort of back to what kind of work will these tools replace and what kind of work will they not replace? Then that's kind of going to be how it, how things I think shake out as we go forward. I want to get your take on the lawyer. I think it was out East, maybe New York where cited the cases that were hallucinations that cases that didn't exist. And then, you know, he got in trouble rightly So, but then there's been a lot of courts that I, I personally think, and this is why I want to get you to weigh in on this, that, kind of knee-jerk reaction, like, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Some, I, I think some of the said, don't use it, but here's what I struggle with on that. A lawyer's duty to check his work, regardless if it's a manual or using AI, has always been the same. Back when we were still doing this stuff, we shepherdized cases. You, get, you had to check your case to make sure it actually supported the proposition you were citing it for, and you had to check, you know, check your opponents too. Like, I don't think that's changed. I don't think AI changes a lawyer's duty, and it's just a matter of dotting your eyes across your T's, right? Yeah, I would agree with you. You know, I, I'm a little dismayed at some of the orders that are that are coming out. First of all, they're wrong. The, the judges aren't understanding the technology. They're, as you put it, knee-jerking and overreacting to it. Uh, but secondly, that gives lawyers sort of the opportunity to tell their clients, we can't use this right. stuff. Right. Because, you know, and and here's why. And that, you know, again, deprives the, the client of some of the some of the tools that could otherwise be used. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. These judges that are doing that. And I think that I think we'll get away from I do. that. I do frankly, too. I mean, it, uh, you know, as, as they become more adept at it and more understanding of it. The other thing that that 
I wonder about with some of these orders that say you have to disclose if you're using an AI tool. It really begins to get into the attorney-client relationship and the privileged nature of those. The tools that I might use on any given case are really should be between me and my client. Because, you know, if I reveal those tools to you, if you're the adversary, then you'll make some use of it. You will argue to that judge that, oh, you know, well, Mr. Embry, he said in his brief that he used ChatGPT. Now, we all know that ChatGPT is not infallible and, in fact, is subject to I mean, those kind of arguments prejudice right. my clients, and yet my client and I have decided that might be the best way to approach the case. So there's a lot of concerns with, with those orders, and I hope the judiciary begins to get away from that and, and rely on the tools that we already have. I mean, you know, if that lawyer had made up those cases in New York and didn't use ChatGPT, just made them up, he would have been right. sanctioned for that, right? And that's not much different. No. And so why are we, the only thing different is that it's sort of, we have this secret tool out there that could be used that we didn't have before. But when shepherds came along, whenever that was, that was a, might've been a secret tool then. <laughs> so, the, the telephone was, a well, you know, what's the, the story when the telephone became out there, a lot of lawyers that said, oh, no, no, we can't. We will never use telephones. We have to go talk to our clients in person so we can see them and you right. know, have that sort of warm and fuzzy interaction with them. And, and it didn't take very long before, you know, telephones rule the world. Fax machines and email, too. I remember some courts when that right. first came out, you still had to send this stuff, right? Like, <laughs> cause, yeah, <laughs> right, right. That's exactly right. In, yeah. Interesting <laughs> times, interesting times. But I, you and I both agree it's it's going to change. It's it's going to be a benefit to the legal profession, and that's all going to be for the better. Things going to shake out. Steve, I appreciate your time. People want to find your blog, and we get a hold of you. Where do you want to send them? The blog is techlawcrossroads.com, and it's got my contact information there. I'm on LinkedIn. If you want to email me, it's smbry at techlawcrossroads.com, and I'm always happy to chat with people and talk to them about technology and legal innovation and all that kind of thing. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.